and why would they want you paying customer who's not using the system it, 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 on a certain level it makes no sense whatsoever in a conventional short-term monthly close sales oriented paradigm they want to keep their numbers up but it makes no sense from a customer strategy perspective at all Welcome to the Delighted Customers Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Slayton, and I'm so glad you're here. I empower leaders to turn indifferent customers into loyal fans. I talk to guests with a wide range of expertise who share meaningful insights and wisdom. We give you practical tips and proven frameworks and share ways to help you delight your customers. Well, we are back with part two of the Delighted Customers podcast episode with Andrea Howe, who last time shared the trust equation with us and lots of gems around how we can become more trustworthy as change agents, as customer experience leaders. And this time, we're going to get into some juicy real-life situations and how to deal with them and looking at it as well through the prism of trust and trustworthiness. Thanks for joining us. I'm sure you'll enjoy the episode. If you hadn't had a chance to listen to the first one, I highly recommend you go back and listen to part one. Let's dive in. All right. So here's the, the story. Here, here's the mini story. Um, I think I think I'm going to, unless you convince me otherwise, I think I'm going to keep the name of the company out of it for the moment because we try and stay positive if we got stories to tell. Um, but it was a software as a service. It's a, like I would guess you people would think of it as a customer relationship management uh, software, right? And so I had signed up for it a year ago, and I stopped using it pretty early on. I just didn't didn't need that particular product, and I paid paid a fee to use it for the year. Yeah. What I didn't realize was by default they had auto renewal set up. Right. So on the anniversary date, um, I happen to be looking at my uh, checking account or my credit card online, and I see impending this $216 charge. And, you know, obviously that got my antenna up. Um, So I shot an email back because it was the anniversary date. And I said, look, I'm no longer using this product. I want to cancel my membership. Then I called my credit card company and uh, they said, you can file a dispute, but you can't do it while it's pending. So you got to wait till it comes off pending. And then the, the other thing is um, they sent it on a Friday after five. Right. Well, so yeah. my suspicions started going up like we're just. So then I communicated back and because they're in the CRM business, I got like seven auto replies back. Like we got your request. And then Monday morning, I got a request from a human being who said, I'm passing it along to our billing or no, our contract department. And I got this met and I said, look, here's what shit. Of course I had to repeat it. And, and I repeat it and I look, I'm no longer interested. You can look at my account. I haven't used it in nine months. I'm not, I, what, what, why would I want to pay, you know? And, um, and she sent me back this, um, very sterile, right policy type message back saying that's why in our terms and conditions we have you know an auto renewal and we sent you a a a note a month ago 
um, on August 15th. Can you send me what you sent? And then I sent the email that was sent on the anniversary before midnight. And then she said, um, she said, uh, you know, you can cancel, you can change the form of payment if you want, but you're, it's going to be considered a delinquent account. So like, we're going to send creditors after you like, yeah. And, and guess what? So so many things that are wrong with this (laughs) scenario to me from a trust building perspective. Yeah. So it ended up, it ended up with me going to my credit card company and saying, and that was a great experience that I could do right online. I could dispute it after it went through and just pull up the transaction, dispute it. We will refund you within 48 hours and we'll put it in dispute and we'll get back and just send us, you know, whatever information you had. It was easy for me to send the email. Then I get a day later, which was this morning, I get a note back the $216 credit from them with no explanation, no. And then I got one later that said, we have gone against our own policies and issued you a one-time exception for our policy. So that's the story. So many missed opportunities and so many screw-ups. Starting with, by the way, like to me, what that starts with this first of all it's it's a very transactional mindset on the part of the company with high high self-orientation you could see how high self-orientation for them got triggered because they're in the mindset of protecting their transactions and you know at all costs you know keep the 200 and whatever dollars rather than focus on what would have you be a customer for life, even if you're an inactive customer right now? What would have you be someone who would enthusiastically refer their product to 20 of your closest business friends, even though you're not an active customer right now? And it's certainly not the actions that they chose. So you see high self-orientation, right, which is bad because that's in the denominator. And you see very low intimacy because the reaction to you is, you know, not you know, gosh, we're really disappointed to hear, you know, we'd love to keep you as a customer. I'm sure it's frustrating, you know, that, you know, you're dealing with our systems and procedures and to see this show up on your account. No, it's defensiveness, you know, not really listening, not getting the experience um, of you. So, you know, it's all I was going to say that, you know, it's a more like software as a service. It's more commodity oriented business. But I, you know what, even even commodity oriented businesses have so much opportunity to differentiate in terms of how they choose to interact. Yeah. I mean, do you do you want to I mean, one of the things that CX leaders should be striving for is understanding what your most valued customers are and how to give them the most value like both those things right instead it's extracting value what say what you mean by extracting you mean meaning they're taking my money and they're not giving me any i'm not getting any value yeah and why would they want you Right, paying customer who's not using the system. On a certain level, it makes no sense whatsoever. In a conventional, short-term, monthly close, sales-oriented paradigm, they want to keep their numbers up. 
but it makes no sense from a customer strategy perspective at all. And it was an extreme example. But by the way, what's the antonym of intimacy? Because I think they did that. You know what? I don't know. I've never <laughs> thought about that before. That's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> but, but um, yeah, that was just, a, it was very recent sometimes, those examples. But I'm sure yeah. you've got, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to make a point because here's the thing. So the one thing that's easy for us all to do is to hear this story and to say, well, I would never do something Mm -hmm. like that. And what I think is important for us all to challenge ourselves to consider is Mm -hmm. that we all have the temptation, if not the tendency at times to do whatever is the equivalent in our own business. Because what happens is, High self-orientation is usually triggered by some sort of fear. So we get in a scarcity mindset, right? We're in a scarcity mindset. So a scarcity mindset says a 200 and something dollar renewal with somebody who doesn't use our software is better than letting him cancel out. Um, and, and we all, because we are card carrying members of the human race, we all have moments of scarcity like that. Mm. We all have moments where we, if left unchecked, we will default to uh, taking some kind of action that is more about us protecting ourselves than being of service to others, which is why I say, what's the motive? That's a, that's a driver of self-orientation. Am I doing this for me or am I doing this for you? We all have moments where we feel that we're at risk. So we double down on uh, uh choosing actions that are low risk. We're trying to minimize our sense of risk. And all of that's normal and natural, and all of it draws down on trust. So the Mm -hmm. deep personal work that there is to do is to notice, right? CX leaders, different contexts than selling software as a service, but to look hard at what tends to have you be in a place of fear, scarcity, protection, high self-orientation that then can translate into sometimes it's a specific action that you'll take out of a fear-based place, or sometimes it's just a, a, what's the word? It's like a, a, a way of being that you'll bring to an interaction where, you know, you just there's a sense that something is off that maybe you're not specifically saying or doing something. Yeah. 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 Well, there's, there's a couple of things that come to mind when you say that, that I'd like to, to press into a little bit in terms of challenges um, when it comes, when it comes to trust. And um, I don't, I don't believe exactly this one you and I have talked about specifically, but in one way or another, it's still true. And that is, it could go either direction, but this idea of ghosting, right? Mm-hmm. So, so let's say, let's say particular, you, you know, the Get Real Project has um, an interested client and they, they seem to express a huge interest in moving forward. And then all of a sudden, no return phone calls. And you reach out, you ping them, you know, in a reasonable amount of time, no return phone calls. You felt like you had a good connection. You felt like you checked all the boxes. Right. This kind of thing happens and it happens in, you know, in personal relationships, but in in the business world, it happens all the time to sellers 
what can someone who still wants to be viewed as trustworthy because you're interested in a long-term relationship with this client and, and they don't want to get them upset, but you just, you just shared the idea of taking relational risks and so forth. What are some, what is one idea that maybe can help them think through this ghosting? Yeah, great question. I think it's a two-part answer. The first part is to notice, because for me, being ghosted, especially like you said, you know, we're doing well, you've made some investments of time and energy, you've had a good rapport, you're feeling positively about somebody, you know, buying whatever it is that you're selling. And, you know, I've put that in quotes, which nobody yeah. can hear. But <laughs> even if you're not selling a product or service, you're selling ideas, we're all selling, we're all in sales. So the first thing that happens is when you feel like you've been ghosted is your self-orientation is going to spike. The focus is going to be on, you know, what's wrong, what's wrong with me, a sense of irritation. I mean, there could be lots of reactions, but they all translate to high self-orientation. And so I think the first little piece of work to do is mm. to, to depersonalize it, to pull yourself out of it. To maybe even, you know, make a make a concrete list of all the reasons that maybe you haven't heard from them, you know, and usually, um, not always, but, you know, often they're busy, they're distracted, there's something going on for them. And it is also quite possible that the value that you felt was so clear wasn't as clear to them. And they got distracted by another offer, distracted by something else. But whatever, that's just, that's still an objective problem. It's not a personal thing. So to notice your own reactivity about it and to manage that, to do what you need to do to, um, uh, to as we lovingly say, get off your S. <laughs> <laughs> and then the second part is, I think if you still want to, I mean, you have a choice to make, to either let it go. And sort of practice the, I mean, I, I'm a big believer in if it's meant to be, it's going to be. Mm. And if I'm chasing after something too hard, that's usually out of my own self-orientation. I'm too attached to a deal coming through because I've got some scarcity mentality about my numbers for the month or whatever. Like, you know, to, to, so you could choose to let it go and, um, and because you've done the personal work, be cool about it if and when they do come back to you when the timing is better or right. You could also choose to engage again. But I think what's key if you make that choice is you got to break the pattern. Mm. You don't just send yet another email or, you know, I would do something risky. I, I would do something that might feel personally risky and maybe even you know, something that involves a sense of humor. So maybe I do send another email, but this time is a really catchy attention getting subject line. It's not just following up on our last conversation or following up to get proposal feedback. It's something that, you know, they can't like not look at. And then Charlie taught me this, by the way, you know, I might write in a, in an email, something like, or I could leave this in a voicemail or a text message hey, you know, okay, haven't heard from you in X number of days, weeks, months, and, you know, naturally being, a, you know, tending towards, you know, my own neurotic thoughts and behaviors. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm thinking there could be a lot of reasons for that. Uh, and I'm naturally pulling the attention to me, like I've, you know, option A, I've horribly offended you, but maybe it's option 
and B, you know, you want a six month sabbatical and you've been sipping a pina colada on a beach since the last time we spoke. Option C, you're so crazy busy, you know, you just don't, you just haven't had a moment to think about it. And, you know, you can be funny about it and say, you know, I hope for your sake, it's option B, right? The pina colada <laughs> option. Uh, it's probably option C, but for sure, if it's option A, if I've done something uh, to offend or turn you off or stagnate our conversations, I sure hope you'll give me that feedback. You know, but mm. and however you do it, that's just one example, but something yeah. that acknowledges the silence, breaks the pattern, you know, you may never hear back, but I think there's a good chance that somebody will write you back and say, oh, gosh, it's just it's option C. I'm buried and mired. And, you know, and then they'll tell you the truth. Like, I'd love to pick up the conversation again in a couple of months or the reality is we just don't need what you've got right now. Yeah. One of the things I noticed about what, what you suggested, and I thought that was really masterful, is um, you used I statements number one, and you didn't blame them, even though you might've been really upset with them. Right. <laughs> well, that's because you do the part one work, right? Yeah. The, yeah. You got to manage your own reactivity, your own emotional state. I mean, that's, that's the, that's the core of emotional intelligence in order to be able to tune in emotionally to other people. You got to tune into your own emotions yeah. and manage, manage your own emotions. So you get to a place where, um, your your communication isn't seething subtly or otherwise with, you know, your annoyance, your irritation, your whatever it is. Yeah. Well, this is why I love this topic so much. And what you just shared is a great example of, because you could be ghosted. If you're trying to make organizational change, it could be another department manager. Yeah. You, you could be ghosted. It could be in all different directions. And, and so I think there's a real role here um, in the customer experience standpoint and trust becoming more trustworthy. Um, and that means looking at, you know, credibility. How am I saying what I'm saying? Um, right. Do I have my, my data prepared in a way that's digestible for them? Right. Right. And, and reliability, you know, if I said I'm going to have something back in a couple of weeks, do I follow up with that? Um I mean, that's basic, but you'd be surprised and people people get busy. Um, and then the intimacy piece, I mean, we could spend a lot of time on on that for sure. But I think that's a huge part of what's not taught. You know, there's this thing called the book of knowledge, the CX book of knowledge, yeah. which, which is nine different books within that. And it's all about the almost entirely about the technical side of what we do. Same is true in the project management world, right? There's PM box. It's the same thing. <laughs> yep. Yep. And yeah. and and um and so it's really critical to to really understand these things and think about how they play out in the world of customer experience. One of the things I noticed, I went back and read um I have the 20th edition version, which is, you know, of the trusted advisor, which is slightly different. It's got some updated yeah. things. And but I noticed that um the, the book was really focused on interpersonal trust, yeah, not so much institutional trust. But yet, as I as I look at the four variables of the trust equation, I think there really are opportunities 
for you to be thinking through that lens, even in a, an institutional way. So I'd, th- this may be a tough question. I, you've, you're just so good at answering them. I'm going to ask you anyway. <laughs> okay, now I'm sweating a little. My self-orientation <laughs> just went up. <laughs> <laughs> there she's doing the doing the behind the scenes color commentary. Um, so so institutional trust that you know, like a person or group of people to a company, you know, how do we trust the company or the organization? Could be yeah. two organizations, but how do you do that? And so I want to I want you to talk about like just simply what are the ways that they're similar and what are the ways that the four, you know, maybe why the the uh, authors of the trusted advisor didn't delve into the institutional trust piece as much. Like, what are the differences? Yeah, it's a good question. And Charlie and I actually delved into that like in three or four pages, so a very little bit in the trusted advisor field book. And again, giving credit where credit is due. This is Charlie's framework. But he suggests, you know, you got to work it (laughs) on both levels, uh, institutional and interpersonal. The deepest levels of trust occur human being to human being. So one of the best ways to build institutional trust is to get everybody in the institution focused on with all of their connectivity, um, the individual behaviors, which Charlie labeled virtues. And you work the virtues of trust by working as a as a person, the four variables of the trust equation and being as trustworthy as you can be in all of your interactions with all of your stakeholder relationships. So, but then he, um, his, his construct for it was to think about institutionally, think about the values of trust and how the leaders of an institution or an organization can promote trustworthy values. And to do that, uh, he connects to the four trust principles, which I'm drawing a blank now. I can't remember if they're in the trust advisor or they came first in trust in Charlie's book, Trust Based Selling. But they're basically, a, you know, a medium to long term focus over a short term orientation. Uh, the value of collaboration, like true collaboration. I mean, it's easy to say, yeah, we value collaboration. It's another thing to really do it well. Uh, the value of uh, transparency, which means, you know, disclosing, except when it's illegal or injurious, you know, having your default be to disclose things, to tell the truth rather than hide things as leaders of an organization. And I'm so embarrassed that I'm totally blinking. I know is these the back of my is it authenticity? No. No, it's That's not authenticity. Medium to long term. Uh, Oh, it's focus on the other for the other's sake. So it's like true, like no kidding. That's another thing where we say, yeah, we're customer focused. But I, I mean, I wonder if that software as a service firm claims that one of their values on their website is they're customer focused. And then you see how customer focus showed up. I would say that's not that's not focusing on the other for the other's sake. Vultures can be customer focused, but with a very different result. So, um, yeah, so it's your time horizon, it's your other focus, uh, commitment to collaboration and a commitment to transparency. And so institutionally, then the leaders can focus on how are we living these principles, telling stories around how you're living the principles, spotlighting people who live those principles, like who have the courage 
to in a traditional sales setting setting to refer a customer to the competition if that's really what's best for the customer. That's really showing the other focus and long-term orientation values coming to life. So those are the virtues and values is a short answer. But you've also figured out by now that I'm not good at giving short answers to anything. <laughs> no, but it's really rich and it's really instructive. And and um, and I, I just think about no, I get it. I get the principles, and um, you know, I, as I'm as I'm listening to you talk, I'm I'm thinking, if you're a CX leader and you're listening, does your organization's principles or core values are they embodied in the four that Andrea just shared? Like just yeah. a, a question to ask yourself, and if not, how could how could you? Um, how could you punctuate or emphasize, you know, those in the way you, you communicate? I just want to go back to the four uh, variables of the trust equation from an institutional standpoint, because yeah. um, I think there really is opportunity there for organizations, companies to do more when it comes to things like intimacy and self-orientation that yeah. they might not that they might not be thinking about. And one of the things, there's a guy named Joe Pine who wrote The Experience Economy and, and CX, and um, he he talks about this idea of, and he's, write, he's writing a new book, and it's about there's no more customer segments. There's just customers. There's just individuals. Mm -hmm. Like, we're not going to target a segment because this idea, uh, the ability to personalize your offer yeah. is here. Yeah. It's key and it's here. You can do it. We have the ability now with technology and other things. Yeah. And and when you think about the difference between getting a generic email saying, we have this great offer for you, you know, come join our, our investments firm, you know, you know, if you, if you have half a million dollars or more liquid to invest, you know, it's a, talk about vulture feeling like if you're worthy of us, then give us a call back. Um, but to personalize it in, in a way that says, Hey, Mark, um, I, and they already know my age, they know where I live, they know some of the things I've been involved in. Um, and they put the right offer up in the right way. Uh, yeah. You know, that's a very different feeling. Well, and what it is, it occurs to me as you're describing it, is it makes it interpersonal. Mm, it does. It, ta it takes it out of the institutional realm, group realm, right? Because segmenting customers is group orientation, it's yes. grouping them, and yes. it actually makes it interpersonal. Yeah. yeah. And I think there's something and to be so said. And you can create it. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I think there's something to be said for that because we think of these, these organizations as these huge blocks of, of, uh, in impersonal entities. And the truth is there's individuals making decisions and experiencing right. your product or service every day. It comes down to a human being who, who either directly influences the buying decision or the decision to engage with you or s someone, you know, adjacent to them that's influencing that decision. Does that make sense? Oh, that makes sense. I mean, it is the, one of the things we say in the, a field book, I created this a mnemonic device to help people remember sort of some of the fundamental lessons of how trust works and how we think about trust. 
called the three P's. And the first of the three, except I can't say it, first of the three P's is trust is personal. And that Mm. seems really obvious. Um, And most of us miss opportunities on a regular basis to build the deepest levels of trust that we can because we fail to really recognize how true and how important that is. And even, you know, as simple as, you know, we we forget the opportunity. Yes, you can relate professional to professional. Even more powerful, though, is to relate human being to human being. And that doesn't mean be unprofessional. It just means, you know, look at your work relationships. They're relationships and they're myriad ways to connect with somebody. So I think there's nice resonance there with what you're saying. So you can't leave us hanging. What are the other two P's? (laughs) Paradoxical, which we've talked about a little bit, more simply said, it appears to defy logic. So like that crazy example I threw out there a few minutes ago about like a willingness to refer your client to the competition. And in CX, if you're working internally, for example, your competition could be another department inside of the competition. But a willingness to do that uh actually will paradoxically earn you more greater loyalty because you are truly operating out of your customer's best interests and they see that and know it and it's distinctive so like paradoxically the best way to get more sales i'm doing the air quotes again because sales could be ideas product services is actually stop trying to sell Mm. and when you stop trying to sell you do crazy unconventional things like refer them to whoever is the best division or department or provider or something. And the third is that it's positively correlated to risk. So the more personal risk you take, the more trust you tend to build. And conversely, the less risk you tend to take, the less trust you tend to build. And and you're talking about relational risk, right? Not like financial risk. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I mean by personal risk. Like the risk of speaking a hard truth, the risk of, Mm connecting in a human way the risk of uh offering a point of view in um in an assertive way especially if it's a provocative one there are lots of those kinds of personal risks that you know we'll say to ourselves i work with a lot of really really smart consultants who are usually deeply steeped in like engineering science technology and everybody's been trained to think analytically and rationally and logically about things. So you'll logically say, you know, this is a brand new relationship. I can't and shouldn't admit in the first 10 minutes something that I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yet from a trust building standpoint, one of the best ways to actually build your credibility is in the first 10 minutes, if it's relevant, to admit what you don't know. If, if the customer says, what do you know about X? And the on- honest answer is little to nothing. Saying that, you know, taking that risk will paradoxically, we link to the second P, actually earn you more trust in that instant. Now, how you say it matters, right? Remember credibility, we said words, what you say and how you say it, saying it with calm, clarity, confidence, you know, pretty much nothing. <laughs> That's a different communication than, you know, oh gosh, I kind of don't really know anything about that. Or even worse, which is what most of us are trained to do. Well, I don't exactly know that, but we've got 400 people in the organization who do. 
And it's not that it's bad to reach back into your organization and to let them know about the 400. But in that moment, it's, it's kind of like time and place. And in the moment, it comes across as uh, like you're defending or overcorrecting instead of just, you know, we I'm clear and we're clear as an organization about what we are and what we aren't. We're always going to tell you the truth about that. We're going to tell you when we think we're the best one for you. We're equally going to tell you when we think that we're not. It just it sets a very different tone. So lots of different yeah. kinds of risks. Yeah. Just in a, just so many gems. I just can't even. And it just makes me think about, you know, how people, I, I bet you get asked questions as you go through training and seminars all the time. Like, Hey, I've got this one issue. Can you help me with it? Yeah. You know. <laughs> well, and um, usually I, I want, the way that yeah, we can all do that for ourselves, usually the, the way forward is kind of get to the core and just simplify. And it usually mm. is, if you peel the onion effectively enough, you'll find like if it's a relationship dynamic, there's usually fear at the root of it. Somebody's, there's yours, a combination. Yeah, yeah. That's a great, that's a great point. Well, I, you, you and I could talk, I could talk forever on this topic with you. Um, so much fun, but we got to land the plane. One last question, which I asked all my guests, which is what advice would you give to your 20 year old self? Oh, that's a good question. I, I think um, what I would want my 20-year-old self to know and to live by is that uh, I would tell her to trust her instincts. Because my mm. instincts early on, I can think of so many examples early on in my consulting career, my instincts were to do unconventional things to strengthen relationships. And I allowed myself to be convinced by people who, quote unquote, knew more and knew better or more experienced in the business world to not do those things. And uh, to trust them and to actually have the courage to take action on them. Because I've learned now from studying the topic, now 30 years later, I get, I was on to something, but I didn't, um, I didn't have, have the confidence in myself at the time. So that's my answer. Mm, that's a great answer. Trust your instincts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Andrea, this is so much fun. Thank you so much for being my guest. Before we leave, I want I, I want um, you to share if you if you don't mind with the audience if they would like to get a hold of you um, to reach out. What would be the best way? So, uh, well, I'm just gonna go do something crazy. I'm gonna give you my mobile number first because if you really want to cut through the noise in my life, call me or text me. It's uh, U.S. number two zero two. 906-0485. If you would rather send an email, it's Andrea, A-N-D-R-E-A, at thegetrealproject.com. Two best friends. Excellent. Excellent. Andrea, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Delighted Customers Podcast. I'd like to ask you a favor. If you have enjoyed this episode or any of my other ones, hit subscribe or follow. I've got a lot of other great guests that are coming up and a lot of other great content, and I don't want you to miss anything. 
You can find any links or references on the show in the show notes, and you can find those on my website at empoweredcx.com.